0: And because love battles, Pablo Neruda, tomorrow we will only give them a leaf of the tree of our love, a leaf which will fall on the earth like if it had been made by our lips, like a kiss which falls from our invincible heights to show the fire and the tenderness of a true love. This is the Alvin Galloway Show here on KRDP. And on this segment of the show is a briefing sponsored by Ethnic Media Services titled Interracial Marriage in a Polarized America. So stay tuned to the Alvin Galloway Show here on KRDP.
1: I'm jazz artist Brettina, and I love listening to The Alvin Galloway Show every Sunday for conversation, information, music, and culture. So stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up on The Alvin Galloway Show.
2: How do we see our lives?
3: unto a song that said song
4: Solomon
0: Burke, suddenly.
4: Welcome to Ethnic Media Services Weekly National News Briefing. I'm Sandy Close, EMS Director. Today, our topic is interracial marriage in a polarized America. Can love trump hate? Interracial and intercultural marriages have been on the rise for many years. According to Pew, about 17% of new marriages are interracial couples. In San Diego County, the figure is close to 30%. Many of these unions produce children that are multiracial and multicultural. The 2020 census found that mixed race is the fastest growing category under racial identity. Are age old taboos about love between races weakening, even as open racism and racist hate crimes are increasing? What does the research say about public opinion and hidden biases? Can mixed race families themselves help mitigate and even overcome prejudice in the long term. We have a wonderful group of experts and researchers, as well as a multiracial family, who will share what it takes to make it and thrive in our increasingly polarized society. We welcome Justin Guest, Associate Professor of Policy and Government at George Mason University's Shah School of Policy and Government. Allison Skinner Dorqueno, Assistant Professor of Behavioral and Brain Sciences, Social Psychology at the University of Georgia. And Sonia and Richard Kang, a multiracial couple that encapsulate African-American, Latino, and Korean origins, and to have four multiracial, multicultural children. Sonia is president of Multicultural Families of Southern California and owner of Mixed Up Clothing, a children's clothing business. Our thanks to the State Library of California's Stop the Hate Initiative, which is helping to support today's briefing. Now to our moderator, Pilar Marrero, veteran journalist, author, and EMS associate editor.
2: Um, welcome, everyone. This is a very um, uh, this is a topic that is that is close to my heart. Uh, having covered immigration and multicultural Los Angeles for a long time, um, I want to just move on to our first guest. Uh, Dr. Justin Guest. And he uh, wrote a very intriguing and a very interesting article that appeared in the LA Times in June. And his proposition was that relationships between people, building relationships with people who are different from you, you know, racially, culturally, in, in other ways, actually can help counter the separation and polarization and some of the violence that we are seeing in our country. So I'll invite Dr. Guest to just expand a little bit on that. What? How can that happen? And, and um, let's move on from there. And how can Ethnic Media help uh, promote these
5: ideas? Uh, thank you so much, Pilat, for that introduction. Thank you, Sandy, for hosting me. Thank you for our interpreters, for making sure everyone understands what I have to say today. Um, Buenos dias, hello to everyone. I am bilingual and I speak Spanish, but I don't speak all the other languages that you all speak and understand. Um, So I'll stick with English today. Um, It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, So the article that I wrote uh, that Pilar mentioned uh, in the Los Angeles Times was really derived from my most recent book, uh, which is called Majority Minority. And in Majority Minority, I anticipate the upcoming demographic milestone in the United States, uh, where uh, the original or at least earlier uh, ethnic racial majority of white white non-Hispanic people uh, will no longer be a majority uh, in the United States and will be one of many uh, pluralities, one of many minorities uh, in the country in around 2045. And many people think of this milestone uh, as unique to the United States. Um, but what I found in my research is that actually it's rare, but it's not unique. Uh, there are a number of countries that have undergone similar transitions and we have a lot to learn from them. Uh, even though they're smaller than us, they're you know microcosms of our country. Um, we have a lot to learn from them and we can better anticipate our own milestone in our own politics uh, to by watching uh, how they pivot towards inclusion or exclusion, away way or to backlash. And of course, this milestone and demographic change more broadly, uh, I think, is a shadow that is overshadowing uh, so much of our politics today. Uh, I think that in many ways, immigration and demographic change... is is the sort of fulcrum around which our partisan politics revolves these days. And it is paralyzing us as a country legislatively, and it is dividing people uh, because our partisan identities are now stacked with our social identity. What I mean by that is There was a time in recent American history in the late 20th century um, when you did not have parties that were so uh, whose constituencies were not predictably of one race or another. Um, But basically, since 2004 until around 2020, um, every major racial or ethnic minority in the United States and many religious minorities in the United States broke relatively heavily for the Democrats and the Republican Party. Uh, was increasingly homogeneously people of non-Hispanic white backgrounds. And that's not healthy for a democracy because it creates identity politics that make the ideological opponents not just feel like you disagree on individual issues, but it makes it seem like it's an existential opposition. Uh, And that's why we see so many of our debates uh, over identity today and the legitimacy of people's presence or status in the United States. So these politics are not uncommon across countries um, elsewhere uh, that have experienced similar demographic shifts. And you know, the question, I think, is, well, what can we do to get around it? One of the things that my book emphasizes is the role of governments and states to make decisions that structure our societies in ways that avoid these politics. But unfortunately, states and governments don't always behave in the most responsible way, in a way that is conscious of both fostering equality, cultivating pluralism, and making sure that people can live harmoniously together. Instead, many states actually behave in exclusionary ways, and sometimes they exploit people's divisions in order to win elections. Well, if you don't wanna trust states, one thing that I found in my research that we can do is build relationships across these social divides, across these ethnic and religious boundaries with one another. And there is no relationship, I think, stronger uh, than that behi- between two spouses. And intermarriage is a really powerful way that I found that people, individuals, can overcome uh, the really divisive politics that takes place in societies that are undergoing a lot of demographic change. Now, I know that many of you are located in California, and. You know, beyond all the statistics that you've already heard uh, from from Sandy and also Pilar, um, California is really the leader of intermarriages in the United States. Um, And of course, intermarriages are subject to how you want to define them. But we're basically focusing on interracial marriages, interethnic marriages uh, in the country. Almost uh, about half of the top 10, I think it is half the top 10 counties uh, in terms of interracial marriages in the United States are in California. Um, Hawaii is another source of many uh, intermarriages as well, in case any of you are, are, are from Hawaii. Um, and this is meaningful because uh, in many ways, uh, this, you know, this is the vanguard of these politics. It wasn't so long ago that intermarriages were actually prohibited um, but California actually led the way in the 1950s with a Supreme Court case um, that fought for the right for people to uh, have marriages across racial boundaries. And there were religious justifications for it back then. You had two Catholics who wanted to be married in a Catholic church. And that's actually the the, the basic logic that the Supreme Court used. And that predated the ultimate U.S. Supreme Court decision uh, in Loving versus Virginia, uh, which took place 20 years later actually so California was ahead of its time then and in many ways it's ahead of its time today. Um, You know I think that when we talk about pluralism uh, in the United States um, we focus a lot on what there is to be pessimistic about and there is a lot to be pessimistic about because of the nature of partisan identities stacking uh, up against and with social identities it has led many people to be very concerned um, about the way our, 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 our politics have become so polarized. Um, there's tons of statistics these days, a lot of really excellent studies that are quite depressing. It shows that Americans are less likely um, to want to date people who have ideological preferences different from them, uh, to be neighbors, to engage in conversations, to go in social to social events with people who are different from them. And unfortunately, that's really no way to actually uh, build bridges uh, across a single nation. And one of the um, primary interventions that researchers have studied to fix this situation uh, is what's called intergroup contact. Some of you may have heard of contact theory. Um, what contact, t- contact theory supposes is that when people of different bound, uh, different uh, social groups across different boundaries meet and spend time together, quality time together, often pursuing a similar goal in a place of equal status, then relationships build and pluralism flourishes and prejudice becomes reduced. And this theory is up for a lot of debate because there is evidence that this is real, um, and uh, but there's also counter evidence um, that it may not be as strong as we think many of the studies on the subject matter are focused on children uh, and people under the age of 25 um, or st- and students in many cases as well at the university level professors love experimenting on students they're, they're, they're just nearby. Um, the problem is we don't know very much about what happens with people over 25 because the, it's very challenging to study the effects of intergroup contact on adults over 25, um, and so the jury is still out uh, on 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 contact. But I can tell you that um, looking at the countries that I've studied uh, and across their you know across their various histories, um, when people are intermarrying, it it basically uh, disarms the politics of polarization and division. And the reason why is that those politics rely on very clean lines between groups. But these relationships, whether you're married or not, you know, even if it's just a good friend, a neighbor, a coworker, um, you know, a member of your church. These relationships transcend those boundaries. They blur those boundaries. They don't allow politicians and others, mongers to divide us on those boundaries because people themselves transcend it. In some cases, they themselves are on two sides of those boundaries when they are the children of diverse parents. And so You know, while the jury is out on intergroup contact, my research, which looks at things historically rather than psychologically, um, suggests that actually it's a really powerful way of disarming these politics of division and polarization. So I'll go ahead and conclude my remarks there because, you know, I know Sandy was very excited for, for this panel, but as a member of the panel, I'm really excited to hear your questions. And so I want to make sure you have ample time to ask them.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Guest. Sunita. Sunita has a question. Dr. Guest, um, pleasure to meet you. I wanted to ask, how significant is the threat of ending interracial marriages, both at the Supreme Court level and also at the state level?
5: You know, this would be a better question for a lawyer. Um, However, you know, from there has been some noise about uh a revocation of loving versus virginia um since the revocation of roe versus wade right. um but i think that that's hyperbolic um i i think it's it's completely unlikely at this at this juncture and uh and honestly good luck <laughs> you, know, uh, you know this, yeah. this country continues to mix um some of the statistics that you guys might be interested in um interracial, I should say biracial or mixed race individuals jumped threefold, tripled over twenty the period of 2010 to 2020, according to the US Census Bureau. Um, and across uh, those different um, people, it's it's not just that people are having more mixed race children, it's also that people who are of mixed backgrounds are more willing to identify themselves in that way. So the statistics sometimes are revealing not just the objective reality, but the subjective reality that people are more comfortable identifying in this way. And those numbers are only going to grow over time because the cohort of children Uh, these days are all already majority minority. So dating across uh, these social boundaries is, you know, taking place um, extensively, as are many multiracial friendships, because children are being socialized in multiracial environments. And so it's only going to grow. And so good luck to anyone who wants to go back to the days of anti-miscegenation laws. It's highly unlikely to happen. Sunita, the other statistic that might be of interest to you all is that um, among the group of people that the census um, uh, identified as as mixed race or that self-identify as, as multiracial, um, 80% of them have one white parent, it's estimated, which is really interesting um, wow. for a number of reasons. Um, one is obviously that uh, they are what some you know, sociologists might call white adjacent. And the second is that, this may have consequences for how we understand whiteness in the United States. Because so many people think of our majority minority divide, you know, it relies on this understanding of whiteness being stable, non-Hispanic white. But the idea of whiteness has never been stable. It's a total social construction, of course race is, and whiteness has changed historically and it will likely change again. So if you looked at the United States through a 19th century lens, Um, We have been a majority minority country, you know, since earlier in the 20th century because white people in the 19th century were people who are of northern European Protestant backgrounds. You know, Italians did not count. Uh, Irish did not count. Jews, Slavs, Greeks did not count. And they were called white ethnics in many cases. Um, And they were excluded from that understanding of whiteness, even if they were not subjugated to the same extent as Asians or as they were called Asiatics at the time or African-Americans historically. Um, And so because you've had um, this changing of what whiteness means historically, uh, because all those white ethnic groups are now counting as white, um, it is reasonable to expect that those groups, uh, that we may see whiteness change again to start to embrace people who are of mixed background or potentially even Hispanic white people. Um, remember that 60% of U.S. Latinos self-identify as white. Of course, some of you might be thinking, well, maybe it's a good thing that whiteness is so absorbent, is that it broadens so easily. Maybe it's a testament to uh, assimilation in the United States. Um, I would disagree. Um, The problem with these expansions of whiteness is that they invited new you know, white adjacent people into this fraternity of of status historically in the United States, but in exchange for the continued subjugation of people of Asian, African-American, and then eventually Latino backgrounds. And so if we were to do it again, we would simply extend that subjugation or extend the exclusion of whiteness, uh, from whiteness uh, of many other people who were deemed just too different. Rather what we should be focusing on, I think, is broadening the understanding of what it means to be an American, not what it means to be white, to unhinge being American from whiteness altogether and to focus on our civic identity. And I think a Supreme Court case would obviously undercut that enormously. Thank you. Um,
2: Dr. Guest, um, before I move on to their next speaker, there's, there's a couple of reporters on, on the chat asking, what is the most likely combination of races or intermarriages? Do you have any numbers on that?
5: We there are numbers. I believe the most common ones are white and Asian and white and Latino. Um, if I'm not mistaken, just remember the rarest combinations are of two non white um uh, spouses, two non white partners. And of course, I think we have those, uh, we have that combination here with us today, and, and they can maybe talk about that uh and their experience. But um, because only 20 percent. Of all couples of all interracial couples are of two non-white um, partners um, you're not going to see as many combinations that way
0: this is the alvin galloway show on krdp and we'll be back programming on krdp is supported by native health located at 4041 north central avenue building c at the southeast corner of Central Avenue and Indian School Road in Phoenix. Native Health provides primary medical, dental, behavioral health, WIC, and wellness services for the urban Native American community. More information is available at 602-279-5262 or online at nativehealthphoenix.org. This is the Alvin Galloway Show, and we return to a, a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services.
2: Um, so let's move on to uh, Dr. Allison Skinner-Durkino. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, Allison.
5: <laughs> um,
2: sure. And she's going to talk about some of research that she conducted about public... Um, And not so public (laughs) opinions uh, about uh, interracial marriage. Go ahead Alison and unmute yourself.
6: So um, yeah, I'm going to be talking about public reactions to um, interracial marriage and um, I'll just jump in and I'll be talking about some data that I have and I'll try to qualify to what extent it really uh, represents public opinions. There we go. Um, So it has been 55 years um, since the Loving versus Virginia decision. And um, we have seen some pretty big changes in increases in interracial marriage as uh, has been talked about already, but also in attitudes toward interracial marriage. Um, And there's also been a great increase in representation within media and advertising And when we look here, this is some of the most recent Gallup data looking at public opinion. So this is approval of interracial marriage specifically between black people and white people. Uh, And as you can see, we've got a really dramatic um, increase in approval um, over over this time period. All of that looks really promising and in some ways sort of looks like we went from a situation uh, where it was illegal in a number of states to have interracial marriage and within this course of uh, 50 years, uh, 55 years, it's become, you know, quite common and virtually universally accepted um but my work i try to dig a little bit deeper and try and see if there might be more to it than that um so in some ways my work might be a little bit more pessimistic than the talk that we just heard um so uh i'm gonna talk through data from a few different studies but this first one i wanted to mention so this is a pretty small sample this is the smallest sample and the most sort of limited one that i'm gonna uh present to you today but this is Um, 148, and this again is college students. um, So there's the limitations of college students um, here and they were recorded from Nebraska. So, you know, thinking about what attitudes of Nebraska, um, people who live in Nebraska might be. Um, but what I first wanted to highlight is we, we asked participants about their attitudes toward dating, living with, which I'm going to kind of set aside because I think they were um, likely thinking about roommates. Um, so dating, marrying and having a child with um, people, and this was specifically with black people and all of the participants were not black. So this would be an interracial relationship for everyone. Um, And most of the participants were white. So just to clarify that. Um, So if we look at the not a good idea column, it's a pretty small percent. And that maps on pretty well to that Gallup data I was just showing you where very few people say it's not a good idea. But when we think about, uh, when we look at, would they do it themselves? So it's fine for others, but not something that I would do. Here, we're seeing that, you know, somewhere around a third of people are saying, oh, well, it's not something I would do, but it's, but I, it's okay. Um, And so that's like the first sort of thing I wanted to highlight is that even though most people sort of are not opposed to it ideologically, at least what they're willing to report in a poll, um, it is fairly common for people to, um, we've got about a third of of people saying, well, no, but I wouldn't do it. Um, Okay, so after after getting this data, we wanted to get some bigger samples and look at a broader um, sample of the U.S. And so the data I'm showing you here, um, what we wanted to do, we recruited about 1200 white US residents. And these were um, people recruited from all over the US. So this was not specific to any one state. And what I'm showing you here um, is attitudes toward black, white interracial couples. And you can see that this little point on my graph is above the red line. The red line is sort of neutrality. Um, anything below the red line would indicate a bias in favor of black, white, interracial couple, couples relative to same race couples and points above that red line indicate biases against black, white, interracial couples. So favoring same race couples over interracial couples. And so as you can see, white U.S. residents are showing this um. It's not too big, but they are showing this reliable, significant um, bias in favor of same race couples over interracial couples. Um, We also wanted to examine here what predicted their attitudes. So is there anything um, that we so we assessed a few different things to try and see if we could predict their attitudes toward interracial couples. And what we found was that people who had personal interracial romance experience had more positive attitudes toward interracial couples. And also those. So this is tying back to um, some of the things Dr. Guest was just talking about contact with interracial couples. So. Um, As he was mentioning, this is about personal uh, close relationships. So people in your family, people in your close social network, not just about, um, you know, having people in your city um, that are interracial. So when we see actual contact with interracial couples, people had more positive attitudes toward interracial couples if they had more contact. And then finally, exposure. So that would be the idea of like people in your community, there being a lot of interracial couples in your community or you see them around in your city. Um, That did not predict attitudes. So how much exposure people reported having just sort of out and about in their social environment but not having a close relationship was unrelated to their attitudes toward interracial couples. So now I'm gonna present data on two other groups where we assess this exact same thing. So we assess this also for black US residents. And so everything is oriented in the same way. Um, So here what we're seeing is a similar pattern to um, the white US residents and the sample here is a little bit smaller but we had 300 black US residents. Um, And what we're seeing is a bias against interracial couples, black, white interracial couples relative to same race couples. And then when we looked at the predictors, so we had a few different measures. So right here I have the yes and the no, it's mixed evidence. So we found a little bit of evidence that interracial romance experience predicted attitudes but then we saw some evidence that it didn't matter. So that was a little bit mixed. Um, We did reliably see this contact again, predicting positive attitudes toward interracial couples. So black U.S. residents with more contact with black, white interracial couples were more um, had more positive attitudes toward interracial couples. And then finally, same with white U.S. residents, exposure really didn't didn't matter here. And then finally, the last group we looked at was multiracial U.S. residents. So now what you will note on this figure is that here they're, the point estimate for the attitudes of this group are below the red line. So remember I said below the red line means positive, like preferring interracial couples to same race couples. So we actually saw a bias in favor of same race couples among multiracial US residents. So that's a pretty uh, distinct difference from the, the two monoracial groups that I just presented data for. Um, and then when we looked at what predicts their attitudes, We saw, again, contact with interracial couples that um, had a positive impact. So even more positive attitudes if they had more contact with interracial couples. And then we saw some mixed evidence in this case of exposure. I'm not going to talk about this too much, but we did actually see a little bit of evidence that more, and we don't have a great explanation for this, but more exposure to interracial couples in one's sort of social environment. So this is Um, again, not close relationships, but just sort of seeing people around, that that was actually associated with less positive attitudes toward interracial couples. So I'm not really sure um, what that might be getting at. We haven't dug into this too much more to try and understand it, but we did find this little bit of mixed evidence here that it could um, potentially be leading to more negative attitudes. Okay, so... um, we saw observed bias against black, white, interracial couples um, among everyone except the multiracial sample. Um, And this is, we're not really sure exactly why we saw this, but um, sort of thinking anecdotally, looking at some tweets um, from various people on Twitter, there's lots of people sort of referencing, tying interracial couples to their own family, multiracial people, tying them to their own family. And also perhaps, they might think of most of their own potential romantic prospects also being an interracial relationship. So I think there's lots of reasons to think why we might be seeing these really distinctly different uh, attitudes among multiracial people. Okay, Um, so uh, one other, so now I want to sort of talk about a little bit more um, sort of Uh, I guess it's a little bit pessimistic, but also sort of thinking about things historically. So um, another thing that we wanted to look into in terms of why are we seeing these sort of widespread um, negative attitudes toward interracial couples? Where does that come from? So we looked at some things that make them more positive, but why is there sort of this general tendency to have a bias against interracial couples? And so thinking about that from a historical perspective, when we go back to the colonial period in the US, power was concentrated among a really pretty small uh, subsample of the population, which was wealthy white men. And in order to sort of hold on to that power, it would benefit wealthy white men to sort of create divisions to prevent Uh, the other groups from allying with one another. And so a clear example of that is trying to prevent alliances between white women and people of color. And one way to do that and sort of the role that these early anti-miscegenation laws played was preventing those alliances, preventing um, unions between black men and white women. And so if we think about it from that perspective of the way that this sort of helped hold power, uh, with this historical lens, we looked at the ideological um, perspectives that might predict attitudes toward interracial couples. So given that historical perspective I just set up, we specifically focused on white men in the US when we're examining this, Um, but we looked at Uh, something called social dominance orientation. So that's sort of a preference for hierarchical social structures. And what we found is that white men who more strongly preferred hierarchical social structures also had the most negative attitudes toward interracial couples. So we saw this relation there um, between this ideological perspective and uh, negative attitudes toward interracial couples. We also looked at, ideologies related to uh, gender. And so those who express the most negative attitudes toward those who violate traditional gender roles, this is something known as hostile sexism, um, those men also had particularly negative attitudes toward interracial couples. So we found these two ideologies that really have to do with sort of upholding the um, social dominance and hierarchical social structure and upholding um, these divisions within gender, and both of those predicting uh, biases against interracial couples. So that's some sort of suggestive evidence of how this these biases play into upholding the biased social system. And then I have one final thing that I'm going to mention to you before I wrap up. Um, so thinking about where are we headed, where are we going from here? Um, so there's been as we've been talking about, increase in interracial marriages. Also, we're talking about it in the news, it's getting coverage, um, and thinking about what impact is that having? And so to examine that, we did an experimental study where we exposed participants, white participants in the US from all over the country, um, to information about interracial marriages and changes in interracial marriage. So in one condition, we gave them this information which was true. We picked statistics that supported what we were trying to say. Here we're sort of highlighting particular places like Asheville, North Carolina, where there has been very little change in interracial marriage rates um, over time. And so we were sort of going, not very much has changed. And then we had another article where we highlighted places where there had been the most dramatic change. So um, also in North Carolina, there has been a really dramatic increase where it's 10 times greater and so we had these two different articles one where it's saying it hasn't changed very much one where it's saying wow it's really changed dramatically and we wanted to see how that was going to impact our white u.s residents attitudes And um, the idea here is that perhaps we were concerned that maybe this could be threatening, that this sort of blurs racial boundaries and threatens sort of the the social system of white dominance that has been going on uh, for so long. And so uh, what we found was that among white U.S. residents, reading about the increase in interracial marriage in the U.S., increased participants' biases against Black people. So it did increase racial biases to hear about increasing interracial marriage. Um, however, we it didn't seem to influence attitudes toward interracial couples themselves. Um, now, this was just one study and I think it probably uh, warrants follow-up, but, um, but this is some initial evidence that it might actually be leading to some backlash and more negative um, racist attitudes. Okay, so now just to sort of summarize everything I told you. So um, 94% of US residents approve of interracial marriage um, is sort of the most recent uh, estimates and that personal willingness to engage in interracial relationships is lower than this though. and that biases against interracial couples among um, black and white residents, but not multiracial US residents don't have these same biases against interracial couples. And then also that personal experience and close connections with interracial couples are predictive of more positive attitudes. So that's sort of, to some extent, um, some of the positives, some of the negatives and thinking about where are we going from here, um, more support for hierarchical social structures and traditional gender roles um, is predictive of greater bias against interracial couples. And also that increasing interracial marriage and sort of highlighting that has the potential to threaten the social system, increasing racial bias. And that is all.
2: Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Allison. Very, very helpful and very interesting.
0: You're listening to the Alvin Galloway Show here on KRDP. Online at listen 2 and KRDP 90.7 FM in the East Valley.
4: Hey there, it's your girl, Lady T, The Alvin Galloway Show. Stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune up, The Alvin Galloway Show for conversation, information, music, and culture every Sunday. Catch him before you catch me, Lady T, on
0: Don't Disturb This Groove. Support for Radio Phoenix comes in part from Gift Sanon. Since 1977, Gift Sanon has provided books, gifts, self help programs, and support for Valley residents recovering from addiction. Two locations are available, one at 7th Street, just south of Bethany Home in Phoenix, and the other at Scottsdale Road and Shea in Scottsdale. More information available at 602-277-5256 or search for Giftsanon, Inc. on Facebook. That's Giftsanon, G-I-F-T-S-A-N-O-N, Inc. on Facebook. This is the Alvin Galloway Show, and we return to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. Um,
2: there is a question in the chat that I'm going to address to you quickly before we move on to our third panelist. So we have enough time for, for the family, but uh, also I'm going to ask Dr. Guest to, uh, to talk to say whatever he wants to add. It's from Julia Tong. Julia, do you want to ask your question about class? With how interracial marriage can can bridge political divides or the or the public attitudes about public um, or the attitudes about interracial marriage, uh, Allison, what do you think about that about class intersecting with all this?
6: Well, that is not something that I have directly looked at, so um I guess if Dr. Guest has an answer to that, feel free to jump in. I am gonna try and think if I <laughs> come up with anything That's- that I might speak to that. <laughs>
2: Okay, Dr. S, do you have any ideas about
5: that? Yeah, the only idea, so I, I haven't tested it uh, specifically, but what I can say is that um, in other countries, so I, I didn't mention which countries I was studying, the other countries that have had majority minority milestones that I was focusing on are uh, Bahrain, Singapore, Mauritius, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, the Hawaiian kingdom before it was annexed by the United States and, uh, and then New York City. Um, the, the, the where class intersects is there have been periods in, in, in history over the course of history where oftentimes um, people of different racial, ethnic or religious backgrounds are brought into solidarity with each other um, by labor movements and other more socialized politics. And when that has happened, you started to see the reduction of social barriers and norms around intermingling uh, take place. So a really good example from the American uh, context is in Hawaii. So in Hawaii, um, during the 19th tens to the 19 uh 19 teens to the 19 like 40s um there is a movement uh, on sugar plantations to unionize and previously they were broken up between a japanese sugar worker uh group uh a a chinese sugar worker group a native hawaiian sugar worker group and eventually they all consolidate into a single one and i forgot exactly what the name of that organization was Um, but they all work together and um that was that drove a lot of interracial relationships along with the sort of shared sense of subjugation underneath the Americans assimilationist regime, which was quite severe there. And so, you know, this kind of goes back, I think to the contact theory um, literature that uh, Professor Skinner also was referencing. And, um, and, and it shows that I think when people are, are, are placed into you know, connection with each other, particularly with a common goal in mind, and on equal footing, then you actually start to see prejudice reduction take place, which in many ways is the sort of the holy grail. Um, you know, in many ways, I think that you know Dr. Skinner's work is is looking at prejudice reduction uh, through a proxy, which is you know views towards interracial marriage. Um, but of course, that's a generally a good thing for the country more broadly uh, because it's also associated with support for democratic norms. <laughs>
7: friend has got a friend in mind Cause I've had more than a little time So it's on your mark and ready set But I know my heart's not ready yet I can walk into a room without And I don't get drunk and talk about you So I guess I've learned to live
3: without you
7: I just don't know how to love without you She don't have to look just like you No her eyes don't have to be that hard to give someone a chance when you can't get past that second date I can walk into a room without you and I don't get drunk and talk about you so I, I guess I've learned a little I just don't know how to love
3: without you.
7: Sometimes the pain is dull to numb. And I can't believe how far I've come. Friend has got a friend in mind. Cause I've had more than a
3: little time.
0: Love without you, Darius Rucker and Cheryl Crow.
2: Uh, Dr. Guest, thank you. We're going to move on to to uh, our third speaker, um, Sonia uh, Smith Kang. Did Richard arrive? So yes. I'm going to introduce um, this couple, uh, and um, that's Sonia Smith Kang and Richard Richard Kang. Um, and I'm just going to ask uh, some questions of them both, and then you can also join asking questions if you want. So Sonia. Um, so you grew up in a family that was biracial, African American and and, and Mexican American. How how was that like? Uh, did you feel different than everyone else?
1: <laughs> We're just gonna go straight for it, huh? Uh, so yes, listen, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I I I, I want to start by just saying thank you for having me. Um, and give a land acknowledgement. I'm here uh, today from Los Angeles. I'm on the occupied territory of the Gabrielino Tongva nation land. So it's in this acknowledgement process that we take the first steps on the long road towards reconciliation as stewards of these lands. So thank you for having me. Um, Yes, my father is African-American and my mom is Mexican. Um, I'm a proud military brat. Um, and so my parents were on um, stationed on the island of Puerto Rico, where I was born. Um, so I have also that third culture kid um, part to me as well that I identify with. Um, and from Puerto Rico, we went to the Hawaiian island of Oahu. Um, and so from Hawaii to uh, Los Angeles, where I met my husband, Richard, um, who is Korean-American. Uh, together, we have four children uh, that we are raising intentionally in a multicultural, multiracial, multilingual home here in Los Angeles.
2: Richard, welcome. How are you? Hi, thank you. Good to, good to have you. So you, you, are this, you are the son of immigrants, right? You're the child of immigrants. How, how yes. was, what was that like?
8: Uh, so interestingly, um, uh, you know, uh, my uh, growing up was a little different than Sonia's. So, um, I actually spoke, uh, Korean, uh, I didn't speak English until I was school age. Um, so growing up in America, even though I was born here, um, I didn't really, um, even between my siblings, we spoke Korean because, um, uh, one, uh, even though my dad spoke English, uh, my mom was, uh. Uh, didn't speak english so we, the only way to communicate with her was uh in korean um so um like i said, it was a very it was very uh uh we we kind of i guess knew i kind of knew I was different when i entered school age because um uh one it was the first time i i had used english um and it was uh you know i i lived in a predominantly white area so um uh, you could already, I could already tell that I, there was something different about our family.
2: Thank you. Um, so when you both met and fell in love, how was that for both of your respective families? Did they accept each other? How, was it a struggle or was it easy? <laughs> I'll let Sonia do it.
8: Her family was easy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, my my
1: family was uh very easy. Uh I think we did face some uh pushback and uh challenge from uh Richard's family. Um uh, Richard.
8: Yeah, so it's not what, what? um yeah, my my parents um were not uh I mean i will like frankly say that they were not accepting and they were they were uh, opposed um to us even um I think it was just not the relationship but even as we got close to getting married that's that's um uh where the opposition because you know that that was almost like a f- finality for them um and it wasn't it's a story that I know is not unique to to us but um to me it felt like there was no resolution at the time that it would it would never resolve that this was just a crossroads that we were at, but I, I knew it was the one that I would, um, one I would have to bear, because uh, I wasn't gonna, I, I mean, I was gonna marry Sonia no matter what, whether my parents accepted it or not. So, um, and, and talking with other, other people who were going through similar, or who had gone through similar, you know, they would always uh, reassure me, oh, eventually my parents will come around. But I think when you're at the time in the, in the moment you feel like you you've probably lost your parents. Um, and I think it's a, it's a story that a lot of people can, can, um, attest to, but, uh, at the time, yeah, I felt like probably there's a, you know, I didn't realize, you know, it doesn't have to be a choice, but it felt like you, know, I would have to choose between Sonia and my parents. And of course I chose Sonia uh, and I married her. Um, and eventually my parents did come around, which is another story, but, um, so, um, so that there were definitely struggles in the beginning.
2: So the, the, the grandchildren helped? Uh, to yes, and, the that, and that's
8: one of the things people <laughs> would tell me once they see the grandchildren, you know, everything changes, which I, I, I still at the time I felt like it wasn't. But there were a couple of things, you know, my father became sick um, and he knew that there was limited time for him. So I think that was one, but it was really not until they met um, met their grandchildren, that they really opened their hearts to us. Yes,
1: that you can hear, you can hear the grandkids in the background there. Yeah, <laughs> there
2: they are. <laughs> all right. So um, how did being so in your case, Sonia, how did being biracial influence your life and your choice of partner? Did it? did it at all? Or?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, You know, Richard and I started as friends. Uh, I didn't even, you know, think necessarily about, uh, you know, who I was going to um, uh, marry at that time. It was just, you know, I was kind of uh, an equal opportunity uh, dater, uh, if you will. And so I think growing up, I just always knew, um, you know, I I didn't fit in very, very well. Like I I grew up in... um, when we left Hawaii and came to Los Angeles, I grew up at a time of you know the eighties kind of uh Farrah faucet blonde hair, blue eyes, big waves, and I was darker skinned uh had you know tight curly hair and um so i didn't I knew this whole time you know I had a surname of uh Smith in a predominantly latino uh area in school uh so I always just kind of stuck out uh I spoke Spanish, folks didn't kind of see that you know they didn't believe uh I think being multiracial um is is this whole thing where we have to prove ourselves you have to prove your blackness, prove your uh uh you know Latini, uh latina kind of um heritage and, and what it what that means. Uh, is different for folks, and so um, then fast forward. I meet Richard, and uh, we have children who are um, multiracial. And I'm thinking, okay, how are we going to make this better for them? Yes, the world is changing. Yes, the numbers are increasing, uh, but they're still going to face, uh, you know, some some bumps along the road i had that experience growing up so i kind of took that on in our household um you know richard and i did a lot of talking about what our house was going to look like what our home was going to look like what uh products and what uh things we brought into the home in order to um you know safeguard their identity uh we called it culture proofing our home where we child-proofed to protect them from injury. We culture-proofed to protect their identity, and so we made sure that we brought in products and um, uh, books and movies, all that that looked like our family in an authentic and um, uh, way that helped uphold the the home we wanted and and what we wanted our children to to see in here. Uh,
2: for both of you, how how do others react? to you as a couple?
1: Well, I think first off, they don't, I think they see, uh, I don't think it makes sense. I don't think they see Richard and I as a couple at times. I think they just think, oh, look, two people walking together. Um, I don't know if they necessarily <laughs> put the two together, which is, has always uh, you know, struck me as odd. Um, and then when they see us all together, you could just kind of see their faces kind of trying to quickly make sense of the group um uh richard how about you
8: yeah I, I would i would say that but you know at the same time we live in los angeles so we're not we're not that unique <laughs> in the setting we're at um so i think it depends on where we're in this where in the city, or what environment? Um, but for the, for the most part, yeah, I would say what what Sonia was said is pretty accurate.
1: I don't think they okay, expect so a Korean. Uh, I think they kind of see black, white, and maybe Asian, white. I don't think they necessarily see Korean, uh, black, Mexican, kind of as a as a group. And right. I think, uh, uh the previous uh speaker kind of spoke to those numbers as yeah. well of kind of let's come yeah um, how
2: do your children... Uh, i'm sorry um how do how do how you i don't know how old your children are but how do they self identify in terms of race do they have they gotten that chance
1: yeah well they've grown up with the language which is was really important to us uh to to kind of arm them with the language really early on um and you know they so they identify yeah. as um as multiracial uh and they they say all you know uh, ethnicity and and uh race as well um understanding that race is a social construct uh but yes, so they'll say i'm um and they go in different orders sometimes you know uh they'll say black mexican korean korean you know so all the kind of mixtures of it. But, um, you know, the challenge has not been within our home. It's kind of when they step outside of the home uh, that they face the greatest kind of challenge, even from, uh, you know, filling out forms in school. Uh, there's there's still a uh, very, you know, antiquated, um, you know, system of of the federal forms that aren't, you know, within the guidelines. Uh, that still have them pick one or you know choose one um or you know so there's not necessarily necessarily the the box that kind of gives them who they are um so that has kind of been you know the challenge and and also um you know even from educators not understanding um you know from as small as multicultural day having them pick you know one item to to talk about. Um, so all of it is a learning process for them, um, but they identify as all.
2: Great. Thank you, Sonia. Uh, one last question for you before we go to a a final round. Um, so you're a business owner and you created this, uh, clothing company for kids that, and and you, you present this company as creating clothing that is multicultural. How does that work? And what made you want to do that? Mixed up clothing is the name.
1: Oh Yes. Uh, So, you know, uh, again, bringing, being an intentional family, uh, we celebrated uh, um, and Richard, uh, it's the toll, I believe, you know, so 100 day um, and the children are wearing these uh, beautiful hanboks. And um, so I knew that there was something in clothing that would, you know, um, that kind of brings in this sense of self. And I wanted to duplicate that feeling of giving my children something on an everyday basis. And because I've been, you know, seen the world and have been represented um, or represent different cultures, I knew that I wanted to uh, use fashion as my vehicle to talk about culture, diversity, and inclusion. And that's where mixed up clothing comes from. It's a way to share, and it's a conversation starter. Um, and now uh, we're in Macy's, so I think the 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 fact that folks are getting it and and really taking the time to see that uh, there's beauty in the diversity um, has really uh, helped, you know, kind of steer the conversation around cultures and ethnicity and race.
2: Thank reason. you. We only have probably three or four minutes to go. I just wanted to tell the reporters that uh, I made a mistake at the beginning. Sonia is vice president of the multicultural families of Southern California, not present. Okay, thank you very much. Let's ask the final question from all of you. So, um, how do you see, do you see the acceptance of multiracial marriage mitigating hate? And at the same time, we are now f- seeing a rise in racist hate acts or acts of violence or of hate hate crimes. Uh, and at the same time, we're seeing more, into, more People mixing, mixing intermarrying, and having multicultural children. How, how do we balance both? And do you think one influences the other? Dr. Guest, final thoughts? Very shortly. Yeah, this 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 uh, final idea for all the final question for for you about how you know do you see interracial marriage? I, I guess you answered this question in your article, but we are seeing a, a rise in 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 hate crimes against certain populations of, of color, and at the same time we see more people connecting. So how, how do these two balance, and can one influence the other?
5: Uh, you broke up again, but I think I understood the question. Um, <laughs> so It's okay. Uh, so so we're at a time of, of profound social instability. Um, I, I mentioned the sort of specter of the majority-minority milestone, uh, great demographic change, great political polarization, um, economic inequality, it goes without saying as well. Um, and during those periods, it's reasonable to expect, you know, uh, backlash and, and, and violence. Um it is it is not necessarily a, a a driven by um intermarriages per se. Um but uh intermarriage is I think a a manifestation of a lot of these phenomena that we're discussing. Um that is changing the way our world uh interacts socially and uh, and so it's natural to expect some backlash when, when you when you have that happen. What I would point to a lot of people to, though, is some really fa- fascinating research that comes out of Hawaii, um, which is uh, uh, has been a majority minority country, um, I should say, um, state, but previously a country for over 100 years. And what we see there is the really positive benefits of prejudice reduction that takes place when you have um, uh, among children in the schools. And I think that, you know, that demonstrates that um, ultimately, even when intermarriage may be controversial, um, the kind of cohort effect of it passing through multiple generations over time is going to lead the country to, to heal itself. Um, even though it may, you know, interracial couples and and, and interracial relationships um, may need to bear uh, a certain degree of discrimination as Dr. Skinner demonstrated along the way. Um, but I think that overall, it's a really good thing. Um, what okay. can actually facilitate this a little bit more? I'll just conclude with this: um, is is facilitating that contact. Um, we don't think of contact as a, as a sort of a goal. Uh, we think of it as a sort of a circumstance, you know, something that just happens. Um, but we need to cultivate it. We need to cultivate pluralism, and uh, and that means you know not residentially segregating, not scholastically segregating, and, and trying to find ways to have actually coming together so we can empathize.
2: Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Skinner-Zurkingham. Final thoughts?
6: Uh, I guess my thoughts on that are that I do sort of see all these things being interrelated in the sense that there are there's progress being made in various places where we see increased um, yeah interracial marriage we see we see areas of progress, but also that the backlash and the increased hostility and hate and so on also is like a response to that. So I think all those things are interrelated and hard to say where like, how exactly that's gonna go. But I do think that probably increased progress is going to continue to elicit that, especially when there's people playing on it, which I think we certainly see within politics.
2: Thank you. Um, Sonia and Richard, you want to final thoughts on that? Do you feel, do you, do you see yourself as helping in you know, a society by just being you?
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, I think uh, I don't want it to feel like, uh, you know, we're the, the, you know, the savior or the hero. No, I don't think uh, interracial or mixed race. Uh, I think that's, um, I think we have to just continue to work on the cause of racism and, you know, the continue to have the focus of the conversations around the social structure of race, access to equity, equality, and justice. So um, there's still work to be done. Um, you know, mixed race folks aren't gonna solve it. Um, I would just ask as, you know, for journalism to to continue to identify the language um, that is, uh, you know, that is taken on by, uh, mixed-race folks and understand, um, you know, their stories. Uh, we're not a monolith, and and I think it's important to tell these stories, and I appreciate the opportunity to share ours. Um, and I, I left my information on the chat if anybody would like to reach out. I saw a couple of great questions. Just in a, quickly, uh, Richard came from New York to Los Angeles uh, to pursue medicine, and I was, uh, before I started mixed up clothing I was a critical care uh, registered nurse Richard came to do his fellowship at uh, the hospital I was at and uh, that was our mutual uh, uh, kind of how we met story um, so I just want to thank the person who, who asked um, and he's back in New York uh, visiting family so uh, today is the first time I get to see his face <laughs>
2: uh-huh. well it's a good thing that we did this then Richard that's final right thoughts, we have to thank
8: you <laughs> Yes, oh, you me? are unmuted, yes. Oh, yes. Um, Final thoughts? Uh, yeah, you know, I think going back to that question about, uh, and I thought more about how other people see us. Um, so it, it is um, at least not as common for a Korean male to marry outside of um, our culture. So it's definitely something um, uh, that is uh, I, I guess newer to, to people who see us together but also I think sometimes it's amusing to see people react when when they when they meet Sonia Kang they expect like this Korean lady and they see Sonia who's you know so it, it's something that um, is, is amusing but at the same time hopefully it just becomes the norm and and you know uh, and hopefully it, it's a wave you know we li- we live in I feel like we're pretty isolated in Los Angeles, even though that's kind of funny to say, because most of America is really not um, what we see in the big cities. So um, mm-hmm. hopefully this is something that that, that just becomes a non-issue uh, for the rest of the country.
2: I'm very thankful to you both. You, you are so fantastic and thank you for our experts as well. Uh, Sandy, do you wanna say any final things, any final notes? And
4: then we close because we're late. This was a terrific panel and inspiring, and we hope to stay in touch. Many of us are doing portraits of interracial families in order to map the new multiracial, multi-ethnic California. And nobody tells this story more compellingly and intimately than couples. But the tremendous expertise that our two other speakers brought helps us provide the context. So thank you all for, for a really inspiring hour. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. We thank Ethnic Media Services that continues to bring us pertinent information that affects our lives every day. This is the Alvin Galloway Show. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and also to check out our podcast. You can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast shows. And as I always say, today is a great day to make somebody's day great. We'll see you next week. Be blessed. Thank you for listening to the Alvin Galloway Show podcast. We hope you like our show. And if you do, we hope that you will show your support by sharing our podcast with others and also supporting us monetarily. No donation is too small. We thank you again and we'll see you on the next show.